totally didn't rehearse an intro. You think I would have? <laughs> I didn't either. Oh well. Hello everyone. My name is Ashley. My name is Amanda. And this is Crime in the Coconut. And we talk about uh, true crime stories. Dead people. Things like that. It's very popular right now. Yes. Um, each week, uh, Ashley will tell a story, and then I will react to it, and then the next week, I'll tell a story, and then she'll react to it, and we just kind of will flip. Back so. and forth, share stories of crime and dead people and maybe paranormal things if they relate to the morbid and the macabre. We'll see. I like paranormal stuff. I do too, and I think it kind of goes hand in hand. I know one of my favorite podcasts is, um, and that's why we drink. And each week, it's Christine and M, and M will share a paranormal story, and then following that, Christine will share a true crime story. And it's it's cool that they cover it both, so. That's cool. Yeah, so. Well, we have never done podcasts before, so you're in for a wild fucking ride, guys. <laughs> so hope you're ready. I'm excited. I am, too. The first one we're going to cover this week, Amanda graciously said that I can start. So the first topic we're covering this week is the Cleveland Torso Murders. It is also called The Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Have you ever heard of this? I I heard of it. Um, I watched a lot of the BuzzFeed uh, true Unsolved. crime. Yeah. But um, I think I like avoided reading that one because I was scared because it was so close to where we live. It is very <laughs> scary. It is very, very scary. And I know like a lot of murderers like, don't get caught, and a lot of them just happen to come from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I've just kind of skipped over that one, so I don't remember anything from it if I did watch it. You're about to have your mind blown. Okay. So I knew about this murder because I had seen it in passing, I think, when I was researching Jack the Ripper because it's kind of a similar style, but I heard, and that's why we drink did a podcast, I don't remember because I just binged them, so it could have been like a year ago, but I heard it a couple weeks ago and Christine covered it, and I was like, man, <laughs> I gotta do that one because literally people were tripping over body parts in Cleveland at this time. So Re- oh my God. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You're gonna, you're gonna find out. There were 12 victims in total that they know of that they... A tribute to the Mad Butcher, um, and spoiler alert, he was never caught. So this is an unsolved crime. Nice. <laughs> yep, so we're gonna crack right on into it. Alright. So during the 1930s in Cleveland, um, a peak had been reached between the steel industry booming within the city limits and downtown becoming sort of an epicenter for conventions. People were flocking to the land um, amidst all the success one individual in particular became the most successful and notorious serial killer in American history. And the this biggest... is the Cleveland guy? Yes. Okay. Yep. <laughs> You're like, great. <laughs> the biggest detail of that success lies in the fact that, again, they were never caught. Kingsbury Run is a riverbed that dates back to prehistoric times, so it's been around for a while. It runs from the flats up in Cleveland to about East 90th Street. It is bordered on the north side by Woodland Avenue and on the south side by Broadway Avenue. I'm not from Cleveland, but I know where the flats are, so I kind of know where all of this is. We can look up a map. Ooh, okay. What's it called? Um, Kingsbury Run. Kingsbury Run. Cleveland. Cleveland. I just want to see a map. Mm Mm-hmm. So that way we know what's around here today. Um. I like pictures of dead bodies. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so, receiving shaft, launching shaft, it looks like it stretches down, um, I don't know what highway that is, but it's by 422 mm-hmm. and 8. 
It looks like the li- the Cleveland Public Library isn't super far. The St. John Cemetery is like right next to it. Yeah, which is ironic. And the Orlando Baking Company. Yeah, so if you're from Cleveland, that's where it is. Hopefully you don't live there because it's probably real spooky. Um, so during the 1930s specifically, this was an area where the disparaged of the Great Depression, I guess, kind of resided in Cleveland. Um, it was considerably appalling condition-wise, and it was known as the Hobo Jungle. It still kind of is. It's, yeah. <laughs> not much has changed, apparently. <laughs> um, it was also nicknamed the Roaring Third. It was home to bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens. And this cesspool became the stomping grounds of the Mad Butcher. Um, I'm going to give a little disclaimer, since we just discussed that it is the Hobo Jungle, um, and we'll talk about this more as we get into multiple cases, especially from back in the day. What I've learned is that a lot of the victims in these circumstances are considered, quote-unquote, less dead. That is not me saying that they are less dead. <laughs> this is just a fact. Damn, that's kind of brutal. <laughs> it is. It basically means that they are often of lesser importance when it comes to investigating the deaths um, because they're seen as lower classes of people. For I'm sure it. it's really hard to identify them, too. It, it really is yeah. because they don't, again, they don't really care about them. And if they're homeless or they're drug addicts, um, a lot of them are homosexuals. And back in the 1930s, it was nowhere near as accepted um, as it is today, and it's even a problem today, so I can't imagine how difficult it was back then. Um, a lot of them were vagrants, prostitutes, sex workers of any kind, um, and so police tended to not care as much to dive into who they were, because like Amanda said, it was kind of hard to figure out who they were to begin with, because mm-hmm. they lived under the radar anyway. So it's like, why spend the dollars? Exactly. All right, we're getting into the victims now. So September of 1934, a man was walking along Lake Erie, and he found the lower half of a woman's torso. The thighs were still attached, but it was amputated at the knees. The Cauga County coroner at the time, A.J. Pierce, said that there appeared to be some sort of chemical used on the skin. So it made the body look like leather. It was like reddish in color. Oh my god. It was (laughs) tough and leathery. The search that followed resulted in the discovery of more body parts from the same body. The head was never recovered. They were never able to identify the woman, and she was deemed the Lady of the Lake. At the time of the discovery, the remains um, were not tied to the torso murder. They had not, this was not a serial killing at the time. This was, it was just like a the first victim. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have dubbed her victim number zero. Mm. The first official victim was found September of 1935, a year later. Is that right? A year later? A year later. Two teenagers found a white male corpse at the base of, it's literally called Jackass Hill. (laughs) It's still called this today. Nice. Uh, um, (laughs) It's where East 49th Street ends into Kingsbury Run. Um, The body was decapitated and emasculated. For those who don't know what that means, his Johnson was cut off. They cut a dick (laughs) off. (laughs) Um, It was cleaned and drained completely of blood. It was naked except for a pair of socks. There was also rope burns around the wrist. Coroner Pierce noted that the cause of death was decapitation. So basically, the guy was alive when his head was cut off. So he had everything except for his head? Yep, and his dick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the two most important pieces of the Bo- body. Both heads are missing. Both heads are missing. <laughs> Double decapitation. You should not if laugh. You will. But it's not funny, and we're not laughing at the victim. But we have to kind of make some humor through this because it's about to get real bad, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I lost my spot. Oh, 
Forensics was able to use fingerprints to identify the victim this time. It was 28-year-old Edward Andrasi. Andrasi had an arrest record, which was probably how they were able to figure out who it was. Uh, he frequented the Roaring Third, and not that this is super important, but again, because we talked about how these people were considered the less dead, it was believed that he was a homosexual. A police search of the area also uncovered a second male body. It was also decapitated, also emasculated, and this one seemed to have the same kind of chemical burn or material placed on the body, so it was also red and tough and leathery. Mm. Um, it was the body of a 44-year-old man that they were not ever able to identify. This body had appeared to be dead for several weeks before they found it, while Andrasi had only been dead for a couple of days. Was his penis also missing? Yep. All right. It's a common theme. I wonder... If maybe this guy, like, had a hatred for homosexuals. I think, I think they did. I think it was a hatred for the poor and unfortunate of Cleveland in general. Or, like, they had murderous, like, intentions, but was like, instead of killing people actually going to care about, let me just kill people nobody cares about. Care about. Yeah. And then, like, that's probably why they didn't get caught. Exactly. Exactly. Um... So then fast forward just a couple of months to January of the following year, a woman was walking alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue. I don't know if that building is still there, but that's where it was at the time. Um, she found approximately half the body of a female who was wrapped in newspaper and stuffed into two half bushel baskets. Wait, what's a half bushel? It's like, that's a good question. But what I imagine in my mind is that this is like, what Little Red Riding Hood put like a little picnic basket. <laughs> We're looking it up. Hold on. Half bushel basket. Um, oh. Oh, it's like an apple basket. Yeah. Yeah, when you go like apple picking, like that's what it comes in. It's so like a wicker not type. Little Red Riding Hood's basket. It's very fall. It's a little bigger. Than, a little bit bigger. Yeah. All right. Kay. Well, that makes sense because you have a bushel of apples. Yeah, you think I would have known that. I've never been apple picking, guys. Me okay. neither. <laughs> um, the rest of her body was recovered about 10 days later when the police were searching the area um, in a vacant lot on Orange Avenue. The head was never located, which is a common theme um, in these cases. I believe they only recovered four heads out of the 12 victims. The cause of death in this case was also decapitation. However, the autopsy determined that the killer waited until rigor mortis had set in before dismembering the rest of the body. And I believe that this is the only time this happens. So uh, ex instead of waiting, or instead of doing it when the body's like nice and soft, they probably had to break some bones to yeah. cut this body up. <laughs> I'm sure, I like this is going to be kind of fucked up for me to say, but I, I would imagine it's easier to cut... A leg off when it's firm Rigor more. Yeah, than it, when it's soft because it's not as squishy and it's probably easier yeah it's like a nice slicing motion than mm -hmm. like a sawing and something we're going to talk about here in a second the coroner notes after several of the victims have been found that whoever is doing these is very confident like there's not a lot of hesitation marks in the um i wonder if they're a medical professional because usually when people like drain blood from bodies mm -hmm. typically they're like in the medical field amanda knows what's up. We're going to get there. <laughs> um, through the fingerprints, the victim was identified as Florence. I'm going to say this real wrong, but I'm going to try. It looks like phonetically Polilo, but I don't know her ethnicity, so it could be Polio. She was a waitress, a barmaid, and a sex worker. At the time of her death, she lived on East 32nd Street and Carnegie. I know where Carnegie is. 
Um, she was right on the edge of the Roaring Third. The next victim was found about six months later. Two very young boys discovered the head of a white man wrapped in a pair of pants near East 55th Street Bridge. The police found the body of the 22-year-old man the very next day dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. Oh. Yeah, they're real... This, the killer is very ballsy. Yeah, I was going to say, he's getting, he's getting cocky. Yes. Um, it was also cleaned, completely drained of blood. The cause of death, again, was decapitation. Um, so you have to wonder, like, where the hell is all this blood? Like, this guy is cutting these people's heads off while they're alive. That's a lot of blood. So they're not, they're clearly not being killed where they're being found. Um, (laughs) there was a fresh set of fingerprints and six very distinctive tattoos. This victim is kind of crazy. Mm. Um, they were never able to identify him despite the tattoos and despite the fingerprints. They made a plaster reproduction of the man's head along with a diagram of the kind of and location of the tattoos. And I'm kicking myself because I forgot to write the tattoos down. You can find them on the internet. Um, and I know Christine in and That's Why We Drinks episode of this, she goes through what each of the six tattoos are. I know one of them had um, some names that they believe may have been family members, um, but they were all over his body. They made diagrams of them. And guess what they did with the cast of his head and the diagrams of his tattoos? Threw them away. No, they put them on display at the Great Lakes Exposition in 1936. More than 100,000 people saw the death mask and the tattoo chart, and you would think that that was to identify him, but it was literally just a display. People paid, like, a nickel just to see a dead man's... Like, they were not asking for him to be identified. They just put it... (laughs) Did they know that, like, the people that were going to see this, like, guy's head and tattoos, did they know, like, that he was killed by some random ass guy that they haven't caught? Or uh, I imagine they probably did. I think it, they probably did it for, like, a fear factor type thing. Yeah. Like, come see one of the victims. Well, I'm sure the killer loved that. He, uh, he probably he went was and saw like, it. <laughs> yeah, he probably did. He was like, oh, hell yeah. They're, like, it's like, yeah, man. <laughs> they're showcasing my shit. <laughs> um, fun fact. Um, the original death mask, along with all three heads from the other cases are on display at the Cleveland Police Museum today. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Not gonna lie to you, I might go see that eventually. <laughs> well, this guy's, like, the killer is, like, dead now. Oh, yeah, way dead. It's Unless almost, he's, like, a vampire, it's he's been, way dead. Yeah, it's been, like, <laughs> 90-plus years since then. Yeah. Yeah. So, next victim, the next month, also found by a teenager. This time it was a teenage girl. Um, so this is July of 1936. She found the decapitated remains of a 44-year-old white male while she was walking through the woods near Clinton Road. Um, the head, as well as a pile of bloody clothes, were found nearby. The coroner determined that he had been dead for about two months. Based on the amount of blood found seeped into the ground, it was determined that he was likely killed where he was found, and he was the only victim to believe to have been killed where he was found. I wonder if that one was more of like a hasty like anger. Yeah. Yeah, not as ca- this one's not as calculated, but again, the head was cut off, so that's that's pretty intense. <laughs> or maybe it was like a copycat. Possibly there. Yeah. A lot of people speculate that there was more than one person doing this. It's hard to tell, especially with all of how many there were and the fact that there were other copycat murders. I think there was one in Pennsylvania that they wanted to tie to this guy. Um, there probably were a lot of people trying to copycat this. Um, but nobody was ever caught for any of those murders at the time. But it was the 1930s. So, um, September of that same year, so just like three months later, a transient, so, um, you know, kind of like a nomad. They didn't really live in one place. Uh, quite literally tripped over the upper half of a man's torso. 
while attempting to hop a train at East 37th Street. Oh, my God. Um, Following this, the police searched a nearby pool, which by pool, they literally meant an open fucking sewer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Found the bottom of the torso as well as the legs. During the search, it was estimated that nearly 600 people gathered to be spectators. So evidence is just being thrown out the window at this point. Um, Police believe the killer could have been among the people that were visiting that day. There were so many people that came. Um, whoever was responsible for these crimes obviously took pride in what they were doing. Like I said earlier, the coroner at this point said the lack of hesitation marks and all the decapitations and all the dismemberment indicated a strong and very confident killer, very familiar with the human anatomy. Mm. The head had been cut off with one clean stroke and death was immediate. This victim was also never identified. So at this point, there have been six, um incredibly awful slayings in one year and the cleveland police had neither clues nor suspects so the media as the media does was very brutal um the cleveland press the cleveland news and the cleveland plain dealer were all reporting daily on the killings and highlighting the lack of a suspect i'm sure he loved that too oh my god he did he just just wait (laughs) um this heightened the tension surrounding the question of who the mad butcher could be so the mayor at the time uh his name was harold burton he begins putting pressure on um, the safety director at the time. His name was Elliot Ness. I have mixed feelings about Elliot Ness, and you'll find out why, because I know a lot of pressure was being put on him, um, but as we'll see in a lot of cases that we cover, including one that I'm going to do for a later episode this month, there was a miscarriage of justice on the police department's part. Are they basically just, like, accusing people just so they can catch somebody? Yes. From the amount yeah. of pressure that's being put on them, both politically and... Yeah. It, that happens a lot, they, sadly. They're very... They make poor decisions in this case. But in the end, I think I feel a little bit bad for him. Um, because I think he found the killer and he was never able to prosecute him. Um, but anyway. Uh, simultaneously, Coroner Pierce calls for a meeting with the police. He's like, yo... I got six bodies, and you don't know what the hell is going on. We're going to fix this. Um, So they gathered the police. They gathered a bunch of experts, the coroner, to profile um, someone who could be carrying out these gruesome murders. And criminal profiling was not a thing yet, really. It didn't get started until about the 70s when, like, Manson and Ted Bundy and all of them started So what is, like, the definition of criminal profiling versus just profiling in general? Um, I guess it's it's the same kind of science, but criminal profiling is going to look at the bodies. It's going to look at what the motive could be. Criminal profiling is wild. Is that, like, what they do in Criminal Minds when they, like, talk about, like, oh, this guy is probably mama's boy and he's between the ages of 50 and 60 and... Yeah, yeah. where they are literally, they, to a T, some of the times, they get the exact profile mm. down of who a person is um it's really cool that's actually what i want to do when i get out of college um so the, he gets all these people together and the media again took every opportunity to highlight all of this and they called it the torso clinic nice yes. <laughs> um at the end of the clinic put detectives um peter Mer- merlo merlo Mer- we're gonna go with merlo and martin zaluski on the case full-time Throughout the case's history, they interviewed more than 1,500 people. The whole department interviewed more than 5,000 people while this was an open case. It is the largest investigation in Cleveland's history to date. That makes me wonder if maybe they interviewed the guy and just... Yeah. Was like, yeah, it's probably not him. <laughs> yeah, just, just you wait. It gets wild. We still have six more victims. Just want to throw that out there. 
So February of 1937, after the clinic, a man walking along the shore of East. I'm a man. I forgot to practice this. <laughs> I am gonna screw this up. I didn't I'm, practice mine either. It's so. real bad. I finished these notes at work today, so the second one is gonna be. That's gonna be. That's gonna be a journey for all of us. Um, a man walking along the shore east of. I'm gonna spell it, and then I'm gonna try to say it. B R H T E N A H L. Bratinol. I think that's pretty accurate. Bratinol. Not that this is important, but I want to be accurate. <laughs> anyway, he discovered the upper half of a woman's torso washed up on that shore. Unlike the previous victims, the cause of death was not decapitation this time. The decapitation had been done post-mortem. They were not ever able to identify what the true cause of death was. The lower half of the torso washed up three months later near East 30th Street. Once again, they were not ever able to identify this victim's body. Which is very sad because I'm sure it was a lot of homeless people or sex workers um, and they're never going to get a proper burial. Their families, if they had any, are never going to know where they went or what happened. Yeah. Or what happened. And, and so it's just, I mean, we talk a lot about how crazy these murders are, but it is important to remember the important parts of the story and that is that they're unidentified and unmarked graves up in Cleveland today. Um, June of that same year, a teenage boy again. I feel really bad that there is a lot of young I, kids yeah, finding these bodies. I thought the same thing, too. I'm like, oh, my God, these poor children are scarred for life because they fell over a disembodied torso. Yes, and while I have always wanted to stumble across a dead body, that is not most people's dream. I would never want to. <laughs> I do. But Why? I, like, I, I don't know. I've always wanted to be involved with dead bodies. That's a, you're going to learn a lot about me. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know what I would do if I saw a dead body. I... Because usually, like, when you call in the dead body, especially if it was, like, a murder, they're going to be like, well, you probably did it. That's another thing. <laughs> I don't want to be involved in that. I don't either, because what we will see a lot is they're able to pin this on people that did not do it. So that would be a big fear of mine, but I want to stumble across a dead body someday. Right. I guess I do. <laughs> um, that does not implicate me in future murders. Anyway, he found a human skull under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge next to a burlap sack. Within the sack were the remains of a small black woman who appeared to be about in her 40s. She was missing a rib. Dental records allowed for an unofficial identification of one Rose Wallace. Though, next page. Though they followed every lead that they had on her, like they tried to connect her to the other victims. They used a lot of people that they thought may have had it out for her. Um, they were not able to um, ever trace her to a suspect, and they were never able to 100% identify that it was Rose who they had. Um, she was the only victim of color. That See, that one kind of sounds like it wasn't the same it guy. an outlier. I agree. Some of yeah. these don't sound like... Because, like, Skull, it, like, suggests that it had been, like, decayed. At least a year. And then... There's just a rib missing, and mm-hmm. it that it just doesn't seem like it follows yeah. the same yeah I pattern. Agree. I agree. I think they liked to build this up, it, and they added to this case in the hopes that they were going to find it's who like, was doing this. Yeah, this guy's killing a lot of people, but you can't take every murder that happens and chalk it up to the same guy doing it because you're going to miss out on the people who are really doing it. Yeah, if you're that narrow-minded. I agree. I agree. Um, April of the oh, I lied. I skipped one. There's one more in 1937. July of 1937, um, the National Guard had been called down to the flats to maintain order again. This was during the um, Great Depression, so there was a lot of labor issues and there were a lot of riots. So the National Guard had been called down to um, 
the Roaring Third to kind of keep the peace with all the homeless and the disparaged. And while he was on duty, a guard saw the first piece of the ninth victim by West Third Street floating down the river. In the search that followed, the entire body of a male in his late 30s was recovered, again except for his head, in the Conquer River. This victim had been gutted, and his heart had been ripped out. Mm. So, guy's getting a little wild if this is the same person. Yeah. Uh, April of the following year, so a big space between the murders, a young man on his way back to work in the flats saw what at first he thought was a dead fish on the banks of the Kaga River. Spoiler alert, one, it's never a mannequin, and two, it's never a dead fish. Yeah. <laughs> it was the lower half of a woman's leg. A month later, the police pulled two burlap sacks out of the river. They contained both parts of the woman's torso and the majority of the rest of both legs. See, what's this new burlap sack thing that's going yeah, on? Yeah, it gets, it gets wilder. There's a box later. Mm. Um, this was the first and only time the coroner, which was different at this point, a new coroner had been elected. His name was um, Coroner Gerber. He detected drugs in the system. However, they were not ever able to determine if she had been an addict and on the drugs before her death or if drugs had been used to subdue her to kill her. Mm. Um, discovery of the arms could have possibly cleared this up, but they never found her arms. <laughs> and also, because of this, she was never identified. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, why didn't you use dental records if you found the heads? Remember, only four heads were found, and a lot of these people were homeless. And probably never had any dental done. Exactly. Um, August of that same year, just a couple months later, three scrap collectors found the torso of a woman wrapped in a... This one's really... This one really gets me. It was a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer. I can't say that five times fast. Mm -hmm. Double-breasted blue blazer. <laughs> um, and then wrapped again in an old quilt. She was at a dump site on East 9th Street and Lakeside. Her legs and arms were found in a handmade makeshift box. Wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. See, that sounds like a lot of care versus yeah. the ones preceding that. Yeah. So if this is the same person and not a couple different people, it sounds like he's getting very, very cocky and kind of showing off that he's getting away with this. Yeah. Because at this point, let me reiterate, nobody has been arrested and they don't even have anybody they really think did it. Um, the coroner noted that some of the body parts appeared to have been refrigerated. During the search for the remainder of that body, the remains of a second male body was found just a couple yards away, had been decapitated, and his head was found in a can close by. Both of these bodies were placed in plain view of safety director Elliot Ness's off office window. Neither victims were identified, and they were the last victims found. Yeah, he's getting... He, he's <laughs> very happy that he's getting away with it. Yeah, he's rubbing it in this guy's face, too. He is, but if that's going to come back... The timeline is going to kind of... I'm going to go over suspects now, and it's going to kind of overlap with these last couple of victims um, and why Elliot Ness kind of thought these were placed outside of his window. Okay. So, last victims found August 16th, 1938. Just after midnight, about two days later, Elliot Ness had had just about fucking enough. <laughs> he rounded up a, gru a group of about 35 police officers, and they raided what is known as the Hobo Jungles of Kingsbury Run. There was a caravan of 11 squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks. They descended on one of the largest clusters that Cleveland has ever seen of makeshift shacks on the Cauga River, where it kind of twists behind Public Square. They raided and rounded up about 63 men. Then they searched the empty shacks for clues. 
even though the public had said, this isn't going to do anything, you're not going to find anything, they did it anyway, and they found nothing. I feel like, because you said shacks, mm -hmm. so these are probably homeless people. Yeah. And it's kind of irritating that they think a homeless person's doing this. Exactly. Especially after the coroner has said, this is probably a doctor. Like, somebody yeah. very, like... Because, like, <laughs> you have to have... In, in surgery, we use this thing for amputations called a Liston knife. Mm -hmm. And it's about, like, a little over a foot long. Mm -hmm. And it's sharp as fuck. Like, <laughs> like, like we, you look at it and it cuts you. <laughs> yeah, like, we, we saw through the bone, but then you just take the knife and it just cuts through the meat of the leg like butter. Mm -hmm. Which is a little graphic but <laughs> Amanda works in the medical field she doesn't just cut up people for fun yeah <laughs> but um like that's an expensive tool yeah like if you're homeless you're not just gonna be able to do that with like a butter knife exactly. and then they said the body was refrigerated you have to have a fridge for that and drained of blood <laughs> yeah so like it's very hard to drain a body of blood <laughs> I think they were just looking for like a scapegoat and hoping they could find a shred of evidence so they could just lock up some homeless guy exactly and i personally and a couple articles kind of hinted at this too it isn't fact um obviously it's all kind of speculation but again this was the peak of that really scared me the computer uh -huh. the screen went black and i know it's fine but it really panicked me for a second there um this was the peak of industrialization in cleveland but it was also the great depression and so they were trying to uphold an appearance in cleveland while combating the fact that everybody was fucking poor in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So I think, personally, they were trying to just clean up Cleveland, and this was their excuse. Because well, yeah, you already have, like, this moral, like, problem, or morale problem with the Great Depression. Because yeah. people are basically, like, eating ketchup soup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that just V8 juice? <laughs> basically. Like, and, like, eating dandelions and shit. Dandelions are good for you, okay? But if like, that's all you have, that's not very sustainable. And it's like, oh, you know, I'm out eating my dandelions, trying to make sure my kids aren't, like, dying mm -hmm. of malnutrition. Mm -hmm. Oh, all shit. I have is ketchup soup. There's a guy, like, 20 feet away from my house that keeps cutting people up. Mm -hmm. Like, not only are they depressed, but they're also scared. Right, scared shitless because yeah. people are, again, literally tripping over dead fucking bodies in Cleveland. <laughs> um... So, what do you think he did after he didn't find anything in the shacks? Like, just take a wild guess. Just frame somebody. He burned all the shacks to the ground. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they literally set the whole thing on fire, burned it to the ground. They didn't kill anybody. They had removed everybody from the shacks, but they burned down their Why? own living quarters. Why would they do that? Who fucking knows? The same reason they still kick people out of their tent communities today and then rip all their tents down and take all their stuff. Same reason. Same shit, different decade. Yeah, basically. Um, the media again attacked Ness for his actions, and the public outcry rang afraid and infuriated. No one believed that the raid would solve the murders in the first place, and it proved right. It did not. But for whatever reason, the murders did cease after the raid. As if whoever was doing the murders was taunting Elliot Ness and wanted to make him look even worse. July of that following year brought the very first arrest in the case only one of two. A bricklayer named Frank Dolager was arrested for the murder of Florence Pol Polio or Polillo after investigation showed that not only did he live with her for a little bit, but he was also acquainted with Edward Andrassi and Rose Wallace, respectively victims number one and seven. And by acquainted, that just means like they maybe saw each other once, mm. but that was enough for them. Yeah. However, we will see in more cases than this, his confession was proved false. 
After he recanted the confession he initially gave, it was firmly believed that the confession was incoherent ramblings of a... I don't want to be rude here, but he was not nearly as educated as what the coroner was expecting the killer to be. He was just a bricklayer. Um, so it was kind of incoherent ramblings with oddly precise details, as if somebody had given him the correct information to give at just the right times. So the details he was giving and the rest of the confession made no sense together. Um, while in custody, Dolage was found hung in his cell. So at this point, he has recanted his confession, but he's still in custody. They haven't released him yet. And certain officers are like, you know what? This doesn't really make sense. We don't really think it's him. But the sheriff was out to find somebody who did this murder. Do you think the police killed him? Well, I don't want to throw out... I'm going to throw out some accusations because <laughs> all these people are dead. I think they did. And here's why. Dolage was five foot eight. He was found hung in his cell off of a hook that was five feet seven inches. It is not impossible for you to kill yourself, to hang yourself off of a small, small distance like that. Um, but it's highly unlikely. Well, yeah, because I imagine when... Like, yeah, suicide's a thing, and people in the moment are like, yes, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. But your fight-or-flight instinct kicks in when you're actively dying. Yeah. So if his feet could touch the floor... He could easily have pulled himself off of that. He would have done it. Exactly. Um, and the coroner... So maybe some people are going to argue, oh, he probably died instantly. That's why he didn't fight it off. The coroner said he did not die instantly from the hanging. So he would have had time to get himself down as he was struggling and panicking and maybe having second thoughts if he had done this himself. Um, something else found in the autopsy was that he had six broken ribs. Those six broken ribs were obtained while he was in custody. Mm. To this day, not a single person believes Dolage was the killer. Was this guy black? Um, you know what? I'm not entirely sure. I couldn't find that out, but I would not be surprised if he had been. Yeah. Um, so... No, there's only one other suspect, and while he was arrested, it was never completely on record. Elliot Ness, and this guy, Elliot Ness really believed this guy did it. Uh, that man was Dr. Francis Sweeney. Sweeney Todd! I know. <laughs> um, as the coroner had stated, the murderer was believed to be someone with surgical and anatomical knowledge. Not a bricklayer. <laughs> Sweeney's wife stated that he was abusive to her and the children and that he would just disappear for long periods of time without an explanation. You know, almost as if he was committing murders or something. Right. (laughs) Um, Shortly after the last bodies were found, Dr. Sweeney entered himself into a mental hospital. And that's why the murder stopped. And then the murder stopped. (laughs) Um, Elliot Ness secretly arrested Sweeney not long after this and kept him in the Cleveland Hotel for two fucking weeks, sans Miranda rights. This guy was this guy was white, though. I'm oh, yes, saying. this guy was white. Um, Ness had Sweeney take a lie detector test. Fun fact, from the guy that made the polygraph. So the guy that made the polygraph administered the lie detector test. Now, I know lie detector tests are not usually admissible because they're... They can be wrong. I feel like it's more of a psychological thing. It like, is. if somebody knows they're lying, they're going to be, like, right. obviously looking like they're lying. Right. And if you're a sociopath, you can pass a lie detector. Yeah, test. you just so, have to believe what you're saying. But the guy that created the polygraph said, this guy's fucking guilty, and if he's not, I might as well throw this thing out. So, I feel like there's some there's some meat to that. No pun intended. Um, the sad thing is... Dr. Sweeney was the cousin of a congressman. 
And as we know, that typically means immunity from the law, if you can pull the right strings. He was released, and he was never allowed to be arrested again. They never prosecuted him. Fuck this guy. I know. <laughs> it gets better. Well, worse, I guess. Um, shortly after this was when the victim who was found inside that box in the butcher paper was placed right outside of Ness's office. Right after Sweeney was released. Four years following, there were taunting and threatening letters sent to Ness by someone who claimed to be Sweeney. They never convicted any one of the torso murders. However, a homeless man claimed in 1938, so just about a year after the murders had ended, that a doctor had tried to drug him and take him to his office. This office happened to be located in the middle of where all the bodies had been found. It also happened to be located in the exact same building as Sweeney's office. That just pisses me off. <laughs> that just makes me so mad. And that is all the information I have for you about the Cleveland Torso Murders. I don't care how much power I have. If, like, say say I'm a congresswoman or something, Mm -hmm. or, you know, as a woman at all, I have some ounce of power. And and my, like, cousin, I'm really close with my cousins, but if my cousin came to me and, and he or she was like, hey, yo, I've been convicted of these murders, can you do me a salad? I'm like, no, fuck I'm you. sorry, what did you just say to me? Like, fuck you, you're gonna go to jail, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, there's a murder, and I want to cover it at some point, so I won't talk too much about it, but it's um, the Phoebe Hanschuk murder, which happened in Australia, I think. Um, or maybe Canada. I'm pretty sure it's Australia. But anyway, um, there is an individual who will go unnamed until I cover that case, but um, his parents were both judges, and that individual was never convicted of the murder, even though I'm pretty fucking sure he did it. But, <laughs> um, so yeah... That is that. Lots of dead bodies in Cleveland. Um, I'm kind of surprised that not more people know about that. I feel like I say Cleveland torso murder, and they're like, people were killed in Cleveland? I mean, recently in the uh, Cogavali National Park, I know those two people were found murdered. Yep. And they never found out who did it. And that's what, I think about that all the time. Like, I'll just lay in bed. And I'm like, I'll how do you fucking not find them? <laughs> I'll just lay in bed, and I'll be like, there's many people who have murdered people mm-hmm. and just are walking around right now. Yep. <laughs> I shook hands with And maybe I'll cover this case at some point, too. Uh, But I'm not sure, because it's kind of, like, I have personal ties to it. I have a sticker stuck to my arm. I'm so sorry. It's from (laughs) my niece. Anyway. (laughs) um, In high school, I was friends with a girl whose boyfriend ended up um, sledgehammering her parents' faces in. Oh, my God. And I met him a week before he did it. Like, I shook his hand and had no idea. So it just, like... It makes you wonder. I mean, like, Ted Bundy, for example. People had no idea. Very charming people. I mean, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, people had no idea. So, I mean, we're friends with serial killers. I also have some murders that are very close to me. This is going to be real fun. (laughs) So, I might go over it, to be honest. I don't know if my family would be okay with it, but, like... Listen, you have a platform. Yeah. (laughs) Alright, I think this is a good stopping point. We're just about 40 minutes in. Man, good job us. I know, damn. There's, I tried to keep it a little short and simple, but I think I have like six pages of notes. Here. Mine are definitely going to be way shorter, so I'll try and lengthen them. But that's okay, people will just binge them because they'll just be so good. They'll be like, next. 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 Oh man, Ashley's this week, I gotta get to Amanda's next one. <laughs> so, well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Please give feedback. We're new and we're small and we're hungry for validation. Yes. So. (laughs) And that's Crime in the Coconut. Thanks. Bye. Bye.